0: Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm delighted to be joined as ever by Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And from GB News, Inaya Falarin iman Hi. Coming up on today's show, Elon Musk, the English Channel Crisis, Kanye West and Daniel Radcliffe. So Elon Musk, the deal of the century buying Twitter has gone through, uh, Tom, what have you made of the sort of meltdown in response to it? I think, you know, the response hasn't exactly been restrained, has it? I think it's fair to say.
1: It hasn't. Um, (laughs) It's just been a replay of what happened when this deal was first mooted earlier this year, where you have an awful lot of pearl clutching, a kind of sense that we're now teetering on the brink of civilizational collapse because Mm. a different billionaire owns this particular platform. And I think it does just prove... Musk and his supporters kind of underlying point, which is it's clearly become a very politicized platform and therefore who owns it and whether or not they want to make it a more free space as Musk claims to do um, is therefore seen as a kind of threat to these people. Um, It is worth dwelling on just how over-the-top this response is. I mean, broadly speaking, he's he's floated all kinds of different ideas of what he wants to do with Twitter, mm. um, some of which I'm sure we'll get into. But his whole pitch is essentially that it should be a freer place. He's even made a point of saying it shouldn't be a kind of complete free-for-all hellscape in his words, so I wonder yeah. what that means. But at the same time, probably about as free as it was back in like 2015 or something before they yeah. started banning presidents, <laughs> you know, purging accounts en masse and so on and so forth. And that was enough to sparked the mother of all meltdowns. I remember when it was first announced, you had that professor from City University of New York, I believe, who said that being on Twitter at this point is like being in a bar in Weimar, Germany, like on the eve of (laughs) the Nazi takeover. Um, And they really do see it that way. So I think it's just reminded us that these people are really terrified of the prospect of free speech. Mm. It really rattles them. And whilst there's, you know, it's not as if Elon Musk is going to single-handedly solve the problem of online censorship, and we should scrutinise what he's doing and so forth. The accountability problem with these platforms, it shouldn't just rely on which billionaire owns what, but um, they've proven his point. And even just disrupting that stranglehold that that particular censorious set have over these platforms is surely a good thing.
0: Mm. And Inai, what do you make this make of this sort of argument? You know, free speech is fascism or free speech leads to fascism inevitably. I mean, it's absurd.
2: Oh, it is really absurd. And I mean, if, if we just like think back at what a lot of people that have been worried about the direction that Twitter and other social media companies have gone on are saying is that, just some transparency in terms of how the policies are applied, some consistency in terms of how the policies are applied for it to be less politicised, you know, censoring people disproportionately from one side of the political uh, spectrum and just a greater openness and and freer experience when it comes to expressing um, your particular viewpoints. And to essentially be hostile to that um, is really uh, telling to how... Bias, it really has been. They're essentially uh, effectively admitting that. Now, as Tom said, I I don't think that Elon Musk is some kind of silver bullet savior, but already we have seen um, in the last few days the way that he has been operating differently. You know, he often um, will ask questions to his followers and yeah. lots of people engage, he'll reply to them. Some people might argue that that's a much more democratic and open way mm. of, of discussing the future of, of the social media platform. What, what is the problem with that? And I think it says more about them than anything
0: else. I mean, it's it's interesting how um, a lot of people have started to Say speak a lot more freely, even though the policies kind of uh, yeah. if they haven't officially changed. Um, is that just, you know, people getting a bit of bravery back? Is that the chilling effect is sort of going away of knowing that there might you might be censored one day?
2: Well, I, I think that the chilling effect is a very real thing. You know, if you uh, feel that there's gonna be, you know, horrific consequences, you're gonna be uh unpersoned and censored then Mm. you are gonna watch what you say not not in a you know polite or considerate way but you're not actually saying what you think and so ultimately what many free speech um, advocates say is that light is the best disinfectant so to speak so we want people to say what they think say what's on their mind and we can then make judgments out in the public sphere
0: And, Tom, um, there's been an interesting revelation this week that you've written about that Mm. suggests that a lot of the kind of big tech censorship we talk about isn't entirely just driven by big tech, by Facebook, Twitter, acting independently of the state.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, and this was a big piece of investigative journalism, The Intercept, which was published on Halloween, I think, and fittingly sort of scary revelations. These are things that we've kind of seen glimpses of previously, Mm. but it just laid it out in real stark detail, which is essentially the close relationship, particularly between the American security state and the big tech platforms. So in the run up to the 2020 election, regular meetings were taking place between the Department of Homeland Security, the the, um, FBI, and companies like Twitter, Facebook, Microsoft, and so on. Um, There was even a a dedicated portal that was set up that would allow officials to flag particular pieces of misinformation as they saw it to Facebook itself. Um, even according to some court documents that the Inceptor uncovered, there were indications that, that there might have been a more direct involvement of two previously unnamed FBI agents in the censorship of the Hunter Biden expose at Facebook, that mm. some of their direct communications had had an impact. That's one of the allegations that are floating around. And I think what you essentially see, which, as I, as I said, there was evidence of beforehand anyway what with Mark Zuckerberg suggesting that the FBI paid Facebook a visit before the Hunter Biden story dropped and essentially kind of primed them to respond in the way they did in some ways. It just shows that what we we see here is it's never been this kind of, these private companies enforcing their own content policies of their own volition. They're being lent on by not just the great and good and the media and general kind of polite society discussion, but by the security services specifically, that in the kind of post-2016 panic, it really kind of cemented these two, groups together um, and they have been setting out with the express purpose of trying to influence their content moderation policies. Now, of course, you know, the companies involved are saying we still set our own rules. Why wouldn't we talk to the authorities, et cetera, et cetera. But there comes a certain point where big tech has kind of fused with the American security state Mm. um, and that this isn't as kind of deniers of the importance of big tech censorship, whether they're kind of a liberal liberals or a few kind of credulous libertarians repeating that same argument about their private companies doing what they want. It's obviously not that simple. And it also underlines, I think, the fact that whoever owns these platforms, they're still subject to a lot of that kind of pressure. So the, yeah. qu- the question becomes, how much can they resist that level of pressure and those pre-existing relationships as well? Mm. And it's interesting the kind of range of topics that, you know, mm. they're talking about... Um, COVID-19, exactly. racial justice, um, Ukraine, the war in Ukraine... And again, it just becomes very, very sinister. And also in America, you see it as, as very much part and parcel of the way in which this administration in particular mm. has kind of shifted the discussion away from, oh, it's all about foreign interference and the kind of ludicrous idea that Russian bots swung the election single-handedly for Trump. It's now very much focused now on the, what they see as the domestic misinformation threat, you know, which you see mm. res- reflected in Biden's rhetoric around domestic terrorists and the MAGA Republicans and so on and so forth. Mm. And even they, they spoke to um, FBI or security service officials who said they actually got in 2020, they got moved off of foreign interference and onto what we've seen as sort of domestic social media accounts. So it is just a, a, essentially outsourcing censorship to the private sector, mm. getting around the First Amendment. And if this doesn't show people that big tech censorship is a big problem for free speech and democracy, I don't know what else will really.
2: Yeah. And I, I you know, I think we welcome, or I welcome the, the fact that this is obviously a left wing publication, The Intercept, mm. but mm. it is. Um, concerning in the sense that um so many on the left have really turned a blind eye to this yeah. for so long and many people from across the political spectrum have been trying to raise awareness about the fact that when you um apologize for endorse uh, the censorship of big tech companies mm. all you're effectively doing is empowering um unaccountable uh, power centers mm. within society to actually uh uh censor and, and define the boundaries of acceptable speech. And it, it is sad because it has only really uh, confirmed what a lot of people had been worried about uh, for several years, whether that was around COVID-19, you know, the, the way that uh, the lab leak theory was was censored, but also uh, Hunter Biden's laptop yeah. um, and so on. And and I think it also undermines this argument that, you know, just it's a private company, uh, just mm. just ignore it. Actually, well, if the a private company is intimately um, woven in the way that the state is operating um, to manage its citizens. And I do think that it is entirely legitimate and in fact a moral imperative to Mm. make sure that there is accountability and democratic scrutiny over that.
0: As well as, you know, the kind of anguish over Elon Musk taken over Twitter mm. as well as it simply becoming a freer place. A lot of people are upset that they might have their blue ticks taken away or they might have to pay something like $8 a month
1: for a blue tick, which implies that other people might be able to have one. <laughs> <laughs> you do, yeah, you do say they feel like their blue tick is their birthright. as yeah. oh. a status symbol. How dare you charge me for it? Um, some, uh, was it Priyam Vada Gopal said that that was the only thing standing between her and physical attacks? And yeah. Things like this. yeah. And you think... You completely lost the plot. One thing, you know, I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea. I mean, obviously, at present, it does sort of just serve the role of being a bit of a status symbol. Also, just anecdotally, I do get the sense that, in recent years, it's been quite difficult for certain types of journalists to get that designation, oh, yeah. whereas for other people, it seems to be granted very quickly. But There's one thing—some it- journalists on the right side of things that have only a few thousand followers, <laughs> like two thousand followers—and they got that blue oh, tick. I, I do notice. I've
2: seen a, a few journalists with like two hundred followers
1: <laughs> I managed to get that blue tick. It's very, very strange. But um, one thing I think it underlines, if nothing else, is that Twitter is such is that even people who are kind of addicted to it and on it all the time and mm. spend their entire lives on it wouldn't pay for it when pushed. <laughs> Which know. tells us something, maybe. Yeah, I,
2: I mean, I do think it seems to be a particularly strange idea. I mean, if if people started paying for it, I think it would mm. make them look a bit sad. You know I mean? so actually,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like buying yourself and changing your name by deed poll to Lord, you know, yeah, or something. Just exactly. Like so
2: suspicious. I'm not sure it's a good um, idea from a business point of view. But I mean, <laughs> the fact that people are, you know, up in arms because they love this way to differentiate themselves yeah. from you know the ignorant masses <laughs> <laughs> it's just again very revealing
0: well let's turn to the uk and people are up in arms here as they always are um particularly about swella braverman mm. this week um tom she's been the focus of attention um previously for sort of uh, think dealings at the Home Office mm. for sort of security leaks and things like that. Now it's all about the migrant crisis.
1: Yeah. And it's there's so much to sort of unpack with it, I guess, because on that one hand, there is this ongoing attempt. I mean, she is sort of just target number one at the moment in relation to the media. They think they can sort of wear her down with all yeah. of these various allegations of minute breaches to the ministerial code and so on and so forth. Mm. That seems like the next scout people are going after. So that does cloud things to a certain extent. But I think she also has become the sort of centre of just the whole kind of migration debate full stop um, in a way that has been quite revealing in Mm. a lot of ways. So obviously when she got up in Parliament to um, respond to the genuine crisis on the South Coast um, in relation to these... um, processing centers overflowing you know more than double capacity the numbers hitting 40,000 already this year which um, is a huge rise Such as people a, coming over on the small boats exactly yeah. just over the over the past couple of years making an incredibly dangerous journey if nothing else and she obviously got up in parliament was pretty robust um but and you used the word invasion to mm-hmm. refer to it, and it was obviously a pre-planned line now I do find that talk quite ugly. I think there's a, there is a sort of tendency at the moment on the sort of anti-migration right to just insist on using that as a kind of pissing contest. And I don't think it's particularly edifying, but at the same time, you can't help but feel that there is a tendency, people are more upset about her language than they are about the issue that's unfurling on the South coast, which is very, very serious. Mm. And I think it, regardless of where you come at the migration question from, despite a very liberal pro-migration publication, this is a state of affairs that cannot continue to go on. It's dangerous. it cannot be uncontrolled. It can you cannot have something like this just running out of control. And also the fact that I think if people aren't, careful it's going to really undercut the whole argument for liberal migration mm. anyway yeah um because people are refusing to even take this particular thing seriously and act like it's an absolutely fine state of affairs when obviously it is
0: yeah and I what do you make of that the way that it's it's not really taken seriously as a crisis or it's only a, you know if it's a crisis it's just because the Tories are evil and they hate mm. migrants or something like that
2: yeah i mean i would completely echo what, what tom has said i mean I, I wouldn't use the word invasion and I think politicians are best to avoid that kind of language. And I think it is um very uh unappealing language and, and just nasty. However, it is it pales really in comparison to the scale um of the problem. And similarly, I'm actually, I have quite a liberal attitude uh to immigration more broadly. But the idea that thousands, tens of thousands of people uh making a journey that regularly leads hundreds of people to die yeah. um, to get to the UK um, where they often have no papers and we have no way of getting to know these people, even processing them. They just disappear into this underground black market where they are vulnerable to exploitation in so many different ways. Um, to me, that's a kind of political moral catastrophe. Yeah. And and the idea that um, this is something that we should not take seriously and systematically try and deal with, I think really does just reveal the shallowness and the hollowness Mm. of the political class. And consistently, polls in this country reveal that a lot of people think that this is a really serious issue, want it to be dealt with, but there's just such a contemptuous attitude Mm. to anyone that tries to um, raise it as an issue. And this then ends up, as you said, just breeding a context for, I think, more polarised opinions on it where yeah. people would then want harsher, stronger, more stringent measures because they don't feel like any kind of reasonable discussion can be had on the mm. issue.
1: I think um, a reasonable discussion is exactly what we're not having. not Because there's so much bad faith as well. Yeah. Mm. I mean, one of I, th- I think one of the actually moments that will have cut through of a lot of people if they did hear any of Suella Braveman's um, performance in House of Commons where she talks about, you know the British public know what's going on. You know, they know that, for instance, all the people coming over are not refugees by current sort of definitions, if Mm. you like, Um, that to suggest, as has been revealed recently by Border Force officials, that something like 1% to 2% of the Albanian male population of age 20 Mm. to 40 have come over. Um, Not a war-torn country. You know, it's applying to get into the European Union. People see this, and there's an element of just... People feel like they're being taken for fools, really. And I think if you want to make an argument for... Liberal migration, if you want to make an argument for a more generous asylum policy, even safe and legal routes, etc. It needs to be premised on taking the public seriously, winning an argument and also having actual control over your border. You can't have a border policy if, you, if, you, if your border is not controlled, whether you want to be restrictionist or liberal or whatever. And I think it's just creating a dreadful situation in which not only does the debate become much more stifled, but also you end up kind of undercutting your own side by trying to take people for fools, trying to just kind of make moralistic arguments that don't actually reflect the reality of what's going on. And in the process of that, not getting to grips with a situation which you cannot allow to continue. You know, this is just Mm. something which people have a right to know, people have a right to have input on the policies that their nation, you know, pursue in relation to immigration you know a country should be able to democratically decide who they want to to join them and so on and so forth mm. um but at the same time there's also people want to know who these people are it can't just be uncontrolled yeah. and that's something which um it seems to have gone by the wayside amidst all the kind of virtue signaling
2: yeah and just quickly no one's saying that you know 35 year old albanian men can't ever come yeah. to the country yeah, 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 it's yeah. just you know this particular
1: wrong and exactly the, sort of stuff, it's yeah. just
2: this particular route yeah um which is a, security threat, you know, a threat to, um, you know, sovereignty and, mm. and just basic kind of border controls within society is a problem. Yeah. And can we not at least agree on that basic yeah. <laughs> that basic argument?
1: And it does just seem to be a sort of labour supply line for mm. criminal gangs. I mean, that was yeah. one of the um, remarks that came out. I mean, it's hard to question the efficacy of it, given that there was no sort of data produced or whatever. But um, Border Force officials suggesting that about half of them kind of show up um, claim asylum, then disappear, often go to work in the sort of black market, etc. For about six year, six months to a year, and then yeah. go back to Albania. This is not people coming here to start a life, to start fresh, to join yeah. British society. It's something different, mm. and therefore that obviously needs to be addressed. Mm. And it just feels like that de- that honest debate that we need is further away than ever at this point.
2: I really hope that uh, Rishi Sunak doesn't just you know back mm. down because um, mm. I think one of the issues that Um, other people that have tried to deal with this issue is that they haven't necessarily got the support they need um, from the Prime Minister. So that will be, if a a U-turn happens, I think that that will only strengthen um, a more restrictionist argument ultimately.
0: Now let's talk about Kanye West. For about four weeks now, he's been almost constantly sort of spewing these anti-Semitic comments on, on basically any medium that will have him. Tom, what have you made of it? Because there's the there's there's sort of two sides to this. There's mm. the, the horror of what he says, and then there's the actually quite horrible response to sort of cancel him and shut him down.
1: No, exactly. Um, and you find yourself in a <laughs> tricky situation whenever you have a kind of instance of cancel culture, which isn't about someone being taken out of context or things mm. dredged up or, you know, people saying something that actually most people find entirely acceptable but <laughs> great and good of decide. this is not a case like that you yeah. know as you say the things that he's been saying that tweet about how he wants to go death con 3 on the Jews and basically he essentially seems to be convinced that uh, music record executives um, that inform the media that essentially the, the Jews have been out to get him in one way mm. shape or form he, he seems to have kind of also pickled himself in a sort of black nationalist American rhetoric which um can often be quite anti-semitic mm. um it seems to be a fair amount of that in what you're saying as well also it's just in a very Kanye West sort of fashion is is partic- it's very strange mm. <laughs> specific now obviously it's worth saying this man is um even though he denies it um is quite seriously mentally ill I think that's quite yeah. you know or at least seems to be going for a Tricky time with his mental health at the very least. He
0: claims it's a Jewish doctor who diagnosed him with that, and therefore it can't be trusted. To
1: try and bring him down. Um, So that's worth noting, I suppose. But uh, you can't get away from the fact that what he's been saying has been deeply anti-Semitic. I think the problem is is that um, this belief that you can challenge hatred with censorship Mm. and unpersoning. Obviously, he's been kicked off of or at least suspended from the major social media platforms. Uh, he's, all of his various deals have been denied to him his deal with Adidas which was big for both him and for the company um, there's even calls for you know to take his music off of streaming services and yeah. I think Madame Swords have taken his <laughs> oh, <yeah, laughs> taken his wax that. work out because that'll solve the problem yeah. and obviously no one has a God-given right to lucrative deals and so on but at the same time it's just clear that people really think this is the way that you deal with a problem like this Yeah, mm-hmm. that it is just by censorship shunning uh, not really having the argument yeah. um, that you deal with this kind of hatred. And it's clearly done nothing to um, make Kanye West change his mind. Um, any of the people who might be looking at him thinking he's got a point are going to feel kind of vindicated, really. Mm. This, if you're genuinely of the view that the powerful Jews run everything, and then surely an instance like this will show they are the one group that you really can't criticise, can you? And especially given the fact that, you know, um, anti-Semitism is really um, entrenched in conspiracy theory as well, historically and today. So you really feed those tendencies via censorship. Censorship is a really good way of making nutcases and bigots feel like they're onto something. Mm. And I think it's just the worst means possible of trying to, this kind of new form of censorship we have is still very ineffective against the world's oldest hatred in that sense
0: yeah no i mean that is always just now the default response to any kind of hatred these days it's just censor cancel shut down yeah it never works does it
2: yeah and i mean it obviously you know the comments that he made were you know deeply objectionable but the the kind of arbitrary way in which uh certain uh, the kind of reaction seems to me to be quite strange i mean he's been uh essentially deteriorating for quite a few years now yeah. um, saying all sorts of things. And actually um, a lot of the people that are now demanding for his censorship, you know, were almost baiting him for quite a long time, you know, wanting him to say crazy things in interviews and things like that. Um, and so I, I think it is quite sad that he, he has is now just, um, you know, this figure that is almost as pariah just figure. Exactly. This pariah figure. Um, and as has been said, censorship, doesn't work you know he he hasn't changed he's probably now more isolated and paranoid mm. um than before and i think that that is a really um unfortunate uh, downfall really
0: let's move on to talk about daniel radcliffe um tom is this the most ungrateful little shit in um <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah well this he's, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> as as everyone will know or uh, maybe they don't uh <laughs> follow these things as closely as I feel compelled to but um the potter kids the uh, yeah. they're not kids anymore but the the stars of the Harry Potter films in recent years have made their feelings known about j k Rowling's views on transgender issues by which I mean they've basically joined the pylon against mm. her mm. quite publicly um really collaborated in that fiction that she is some sort of hate monger and whatever. And Daniel Radcliffe gave an interview to IndieWire in uh, this week, in which um, he said it was uh, he thought it was quite very important <laughs> the stand that he personally had taken against J.K. Rowling, and I think it's just. First of all, it's just the pomposity of that position is quite yeah. funny. I mean, you, you would have thought that he was, you know, facing down the cops at Selma or something. And what he did was he joined a pile-on against a woman who he personally owes a lot to, and also someone who the worst she's... The most she's ever said about the gender issue is that biological sex exists, and it's probably not a great idea to have male-bodied people in rape crisis centres. Yeah. That's essentially the extent <laughs> yeah, exactly. of it. And yet acting as if she was some sort of hate-mongering bigot. But yeah, there is an element to... You just, you just think you know, let's face it, whether we're talking about the one who played Harry or the one who played Ron and the one who played yeah. Hermione, you know, it's an assemblage of quite ropey talents. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> their desire to denounce the women to whom they own everything over quite spurious grounds is pretty striking. But mm. not to get too caught up on the generational thing, but it is interesting how some of the older stars of that franchise Yeah. Ray finds late Robbie Coltrane mm. took a completely different perspective. So you do see that there is a clearly kind of a, a generational aspect to this changing values.
2: Yeah, and also I just think, what, what's it got to do with you, Daniel? You know, she's <laughs> she like a grown woman, you know, yeah, yeah. expressing her views on what mm. is a very live and real debate. The way that he really personalised it, that you know, he's spoken to all these kids and he just felt that there was something he needed to say. Yeah. It's just so self-indulgent. Mm um so self-centered and as you said she is um really has never said anything that um controversial she's Mm. i mean some people perceive it as controversial but she's been saying things that um are widely held amongst uh, the population i'm sure many harry potter fans as well yeah and it is this very uh, the way that so many of those younger actors have always see the fans as these almost children Mm. um and that in this very kind of Infantilized way and um, that they have to be the saviour for um and I think that it, it really just shows that he's uh, yeah ungrateful to someone that has is really responsible for his entire career I
0: just I'm just obsessed with this need
1: to denounce people
2: yeah <laughs> it's,
1: compulsion and it's yeah. so strange as well because um to be on the right side of history like they feel this need to say I have to stake out this claim it's so important all the rest of it. But what are, they, what are they doing on the right side of history over yeah. there? You know, they're joining a pylon against women who's been bombarded with death and rape threats left, right and centre for, for basically just sticking up for women's sex-based rights. That's yeah. the right side of history. But that is the world we live in, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video two. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.